Hello, Pigskins fans, and welcome to the Week 12 edition of the Stat Pack. I'm your host, Adam Durovalski. We start this edition of the Stat Pack a little bit late in the week, obviously, with the holiday. Hopefully, everyone had a happy Thanksgiving. But what we'll actually do is we'll actually take... One of our six headlines from Thanksgiving. Put the other five into week 11. We'll also take a look at a six-pack of regression from week 11, as well as, well, a half of a six-pack of week 12 regression uh, that happened during one game in particular of the three Thanksgiving games. And also, we'll take a look at our top six teams here on the stat pack, as well as a six-pack of great matchups for Week 12. Per usual, we'll start with a six-pack of headlines, and we'll start things off with what will be by far this year, the most interesting quarterback controversy, and that involves Colin Kaepernick and Alex Smith. I like to call them Caps. Colin Kaepernick had a fantastic game, putting up a 133.06 passer rating as the San Francisco 49ers demolished the Chicago Bears 32-7 on Monday Night Football. Now, remember, the Chicago Bears have a league-best defensive pass rating, which is just a bit above 65, so you can look at what Kaepernick did. Obviously, not a lot of uh, planning here for the Bears, what they could have done. They didn't really see any film on what Kaepernick could do. But regardless, in his first start, Colin Kaepernick on Monday Night Football against the league's best playmaking defense he was lights out. He was making beautiful throws, leading receivers, making big plays through the air. And obviously, he's also a running threat. So Colin Kaepernick forcing the issue. And here you have Alex Smith, who's playing very efficient football for the San Francisco 49ers. But my headline is this, and that's picking Colin Kaepernick over Alex Smith is a correct decision for the long-term health of the San Francisco 49ers. As for the short term, well, I think that's going to ruin the chances for the 49ers to win the Super Bowl this season. You look at it, a con of starting Colin Kaepernick has to do with the rhythm Alex Smith established. San Francisco, third in offensive pass rating at 104.84. Smith himself, 104.06. That puts San Francisco in top company. There's been only 28 teams since 1978, which is the beginning of the live ball era. There's been only 28 teams that have put up an offensive passer rating of 100 or better. You look at Alex Smith. He leads the league with a 70 completion percentage. The 49ers have a league-best 8.20 yards per pass attempt. And you think about it, Alex Smith in his last 25 starts has only 10 interceptions. So Alex Smith is fitting very much into what the 49ers are doing offensively. However, you look on the other side, Colin Kaepernick can expand upon the San Francisco offense. He's a good fit for the spread option and the run option that John Harbaugh likes to do, and he did a lot of that at college with the Stanford Cardinal. Bringing that dynamic winning presence will be important for the San Francisco 49ers, especially if they don't continue to get this elite production from the defense in the future. Think about this, and we're going to look at Alex Smith in his regular season starts when the 49ers have allowed 24 or more points. His overall record is 125-1. Now, he did also go into the playoffs and get a victory against the New Orleans Saints, when the 49ers did allow over 24 points. So overall, his record, when the 49ers have allowed 24 points or more, is only 225-1. Let's compare him to the last five Super Bowl-winning quarterbacks who were starters in the Super Bowl. Eli Manning, 18-42. Aaron Rodgers, 12-16. Drew Brees, 28-52. Ben Roethlisberger, 8-24. And finally, Peyton Manning, 38 and 62. 
Obviously, if you want to compare Alex Smith to those five guys, he's not getting the job done when the team needs him to help out the defense. You look at these other quarterbacks, with maybe the exception of Ben Roethlisberger, who doesn't exactly get a lot of opportunities given how good the Steelers have been defensively over the years. But you look at Eli Manning, Aaron Rodgers, Drew Brees, Peyton Manning, all of these guys can get the job done when it comes to these shootout scenarios. Alex Smith, again, only two victories when his team's allowed 24 points or more. The first one came Week 17 last year against the St. Louis Rams, and then the second game happened against the Saints. So it happened in back-to-back games. Obviously, the tie was two weeks ago in the last game Alex Smith started, which was against the St. Louis Rams. So you look at it here for the 49ers, Maybe you have a better chance when it comes to those dynamic scoring games if you have Colin Kaepernick under center. By the way, if you're thinking maybe this is just Alex Smith not getting a whole lot of opportunities because the 49ers defense is so good, think about this. Alex Smith, in his starts, in his 75 starts, his team has scored 24 points or more in only 27 regular season starts. If you want to include the postseason, it's 28 of 77 starts where his team has scored 24 points or more. That's well under 50%. Eli Manning, 70 of 140, over 50%. Aaron Rodgers, 54 of 78 starts, well over 50%. Drew Brees, 108 of 172 starts, again, over 50%. Ben Roethlisberger, even over 50%. 71 of 136 starts. And finally, Peyton Manning, 139 games of 237 starts where his team has scored 24 points or more. Bottom line, this is a very conservative offense under Jim Harbaugh when Alex Smith is under center. Yes, he's being efficient right now, but you look at it in comparison to these other guys who have won Super Bowls in this pass-heavy era, Alex Smith quite simply doesn't fit in. And in the long-term health for the San Francisco 49ers, Colin Kaepernick is the better fit. Do the 49ers want to risk this season to try and be Super Bowl-ready next season with Colin Kaepernick? I don't know. It's a tough. It's really a tough choice. And right now, I I don't know how much you want to actually get into a quarterback controversy. There's been five, maybe six Super Bowl champions where there's a quarterback controversy where guys are switching starting positions due to play rather than injury. The '71 Dallas Cowboys with Roger Starback and Craig Morton. 1974 with the Pittsburgh Steelers. Yes, Terry Bradshaw, Joe Gilliam. Anyone remember that quarterback controversy? You can possibly throw in back-to-back championships for the 49ers 1988, 1989, when you had the dynamic between Joe Montana and Steve Young. Obviously, two Hall of Famers. That's going to be the exception to the rule here uh, in this quarterback controversy development. Flip back a little bit a year before, 1987, Washington Redskins, Jay Schrader, Doug Williams, two of the quarterbacks in that controversy, and finally the 2000 Baltimore Ravens when Trent Dilfer replaced Tony Banks. Those are really your only champions where there's that instability at quarterback. You don't want to have to do this at this point in time, especially in this era uh, where it's so pass-heavy. The Ravens in 2000 had a, just an amazing defense. And while the 49ers have a great defense of their own, I don't think it's at the level of the 2000 Ravens. Uh, and you look at it, that's the only example in the last 20-plus years. So I think the 49ers, uh, they're going to have to make a tough decision. I think when Alex Smith is 100% healthy, they're going to have to make that decision. But I will say this, for the long-term health of the San Francisco 49ers, they must go to Colin Kaepernick. Personally, I'd say let Smith play the rest of 2012, turn it to Kaepernick in 2013. Second on my six-pack of headlines involves the pink slips. And I know Thanksgiving is past. We're now entering the holiday season. Before you know it, you're going to have the, the season of giving. And while it's maybe a little bit scroogey to give out pink slips, but I think on Sunday, once again, we saw why Andy Reid, Ron Rivera, 
and Pat Shermer should all be fired as soon as possible. First things first, with the Philadelphia Eagles, a team that, well, hasn't won more recently than their baseball counterparts, the Philadelphia Phillies. The Phillies last won October 1st in the regular season finale. The Eagles last won September 30th. That is really just spelling out everything that's happened with the Eagles. But then you add on to it, Sunday's 31-6 to loss to the Washington Redskins. Now, I understand RG3 had a fantastic game at Cowboys Stadium on Thursday, and we will get to that in our Thanksgiving bonus, but 31-6 to the Washington Redskins, it was to me a sign that the Eagles have given up, and it's time to switch coaching, get a new voice in there, put some accountability on this team, and let these players know that everyone is at risk of losing their job in the offseason if they don't get their job done. RG3, 14 of 15 for 200 yards, four touchdowns, zero interceptions, 12 rushes for 84 yards. He was sacked twice for eight yards, but you look at that, that's pretty much a, a, a perfect game if you can see it these days in the NFL. On the other side, Nick Foles, only 21 of 46, 204 yards, no touchdowns, two interceptions, one rush for no yards, sacked four times for 27 yards, and it could have been worse. He fumbled three times, but luckily the Eagles recovered all three fumbles. The Eagles had only six points against a defense that allowed 25.4 points per game entering Thursday's game against the Dallas Cowboys, and then they allowed 31 points to the Cowboys. You just saw no effort. And I think it's over in Philadelphia. Just make it easier on everyone. Start moving forward already at this point. Fire Andy Reid. I think that might happen if they lose Monday night. And if they lose Monday night in in devastating fashion to the Panthers, I certainly could see that happening. Of course, he's going up against a coach who deserves a pink slip in himself. And Ron Rivera, who once again mismanaged the fourth quarter. Carolina Panthers are up 21-13, 109 left to go. It's fourth and one to the Tampa Bay 49. Cam Newton just got finished with an 11-yard run. And what does Ron Rivera do instead of going for fourth down, trying to get the first down with a 6-6 quarterback with a running ability who just got an 11-yard gain, instead of trying to get that first down and salting the game away and getting a big home division victory, he punts the ball. What happens? Well, Josh Freeman has his first fourth-quarter comeback in two seasons, tying the game up, winning it in overtime. This is the third time Ron Rivera has blown up the game on fourth-quarter, fourth-down plays. You go back to week four against the Atlanta Falcons, same situation, fourth and one in opponent's territory late in the game. The opponent doesn't have a timeout, can't stop the clock. A first-down wins the game. Ron Rivera punted it. The following week against the Seattle Seahawks, he has a scenario where it's a fourth and one at the Seattle two down by one, and he tries to throw the ball instead of running it with Cam Newton. This is Cam Newton. This is a guy who had 14 rushing touchdowns last season. While not the most efficient guy in the red zone last season, he's a big target, and you can rely on him to get a one-yard gain more often than not. It is baffling me how you can have that type of quarterback, but you're being too conservative, and you're not trying to build momentum for a quarterback that clearly needs some momentum this season because things aren't working out uh, through the air for the most part for Cam Newton. If he was able to properly manage those three plays, it's possible the Panthers are right now 5-5, five and five, and that loss would have put the Bucks also to 5-5, five and five. and all of a sudden, you could be talking about the Panthers making a run to the playoffs instead. They might be making a run at the number one pick. You've got to fire Ron Rivera. Finally, for Pat Shermer, he too mismanages a key play. It's a goal-to-go situation where the Browns down 17-13 against the Dallas Cowboys. He goes with three consecutive runs, one for no gain, one for a five-yard gain, and then on the third and goal at the one, no gain. What does he do on fourth down? He goes with a low percentage fade pass to Cameron Jordan, who's a rookie tight end. No, no play action fakes, even though you have Trent Richardson. And if you go with the play action fake, they're all going to suck in to Richardson, and you might have a tight end wide open. Perhaps that's how you could find 
Jordan Cameron is if you go play action fake and throw it to him wide open in the end zone. Instead, he just goes straight up and you go with a low percentage play to a tight end who, yes, he's tall, 6'5", but he's not going to have the vertical ability that, say, a whiteout will have. To me, this is another blunder by Pat Shermer. In week one, he decided not to go for two with the Browns up 15 to 10 in the fourth quarter. Instead, he goes for an extra point. Eagles get a go-ahead touchdown late in the game, win 17-16. This is a guy that has a very vanilla offense. Last year, when covering the Browns as a beat writer, talked about it weeks on end, how he didn't get the ball down the field. This conservative play has just got to stop, especially with the Browns or a team that is now 2-8. and eight. What do you have to lose? Try and go down the field. Try and build an offense with Brandon Whedon and try and make some better plays when the team really needs it. That was a big factor in the team's 23-20 to 20 overtime loss. But if it was up to me, right now, Andy Reid, Ron Rivera, Pat Shermer would all be gone. Next up on our six-pack of headlines, we look at the New England Patriots and their greed. And I don't know if this is as much of a statement as speculation, but could this team's greed be costing the team? You look at Rob Gronkowski. Gronk gets injured blocking an extra point when the Patriots were looking to score their 59th point of the game in Sunday's 59-24 victory against the Colts. Is there any need for that? Is there any need for Tom Brady to throw 13 passes when the Patriots were up by 21 points or more to the St. Louis Rams? Now, I understand they scored quite often in the second quarter against the Rams. They scored quite often Thursday night in the second quarter against the Jets. But you have to wonder if this team doesn't show the ability to slow things down, what will happen? If they're going to get too greedy trying to score and they go too fast to the pace, too aggressive, well, we've already seen it. Go back to week six in Seattle where the Patriots kept trying to go with that no huddle. They kept trying to get greedy. They blew opportunities and lost 24-23 to the Seahawks when they were up at one point 23-10 in the fourth quarter. You can also look at a loss against the Baltimore Ravens, 31-30. They nearly blew the game a few weeks ago at home against the Buffalo Bills when they only won 37-31. I just wonder what's going to happen, especially if you have a team that has a, a good secondary that can cover well and get the pass rush going, how that team will be able to handle the New England Patriots. I just wonder about their greed. They are playing some good football as of late. The scoreboard's looking a lot in their favor, but they are also getting some breaks their way in terms of uh, some extra points. You look at it uh, against the Indianapolis Colts. You have Julian Edelman returning a punt return for a touchdown. You had two interceptions returned for a touchdown against the Colts. So there's three non-offensive touchdowns. Other than that, they had 38 points, which is still great, but obviously that really helped out the Patriots in that victory. Then you look at it against the Jets. Well, you had three touchdowns, again, uh, that were not of uh, the kosher variety, so to say, including uh, two within a 15-20 second span. So I look at it right now for the Patriots a little bit misleading. They're being a little bit too aggressive in, in terms of boosting their stats and kind of really, uh, I think, skewing what they're really able to do. They're not going to be able to run up the score against the Baltimore Ravens or the Pittsburgh Steelers or the Houston Texans or the Denver Broncos. I find right now that the New England Patriots might be in position to, to see a little karma bite them in the butt. Number four on my six-pack of headlines, and that is Ken Wisenhunt costing his Arizona Cardinals a big win in Atlanta and a chance for his team to stay in the playoff hunt. A loss 23-19 in Atlanta despite five interceptions of Matt Ryan, despite a plus-five turnover margin that could have got the Cardinals back to 500 
and back in the hunt with a home game coming up against the lowly St. Louis Rams. Instead, they benched John Skelton in the first quarter with a team up, by the way, by double-digit points. And they put in the sixth-round rookie, Ryan Lindley. Now, look, I can understand if John Skelton's really costing the team a chance to win the game, but he was only two of seven for six yards. Why bench him for a sixth-round rookie that's going to have no chance to get the job done? And it proved statistically. Nine of 20 for 64 yards. He averaged... 3.2 yards per passing attempt. That's atrocious. You also think about it. He had a turnover for the game-changing play. He lost a fumble. The Falcons returned for a touchdown. At the time, the Cardinals were up 13-3. It was a first drive for Lindley. The game becomes 13-10, and there's a chance for the Falcons to get the job done. Three Three times, Lindley was sacked, 29 yards. Three turnovers. The Cardinals forced in the second half. One time they started on their own 42-yard line. They went three and out. Another time they started at the Falcons' 16-yard line. They went three and out, settled for a field goal. And then the third time they started at the Atlanta 32-yard line. And they go a turnover on downs after four plays, a four and out. The Cardinals had five first downs. Two rushing, three passing with Ryan Lindley under center. And none of that, no first downs after the opening drive in the second half. How is that possibly a good situation for the Arizona Cardinals to win a football game? You had a perfect chance. John Skelton would at least got enough offense to give the Cardinals a victory here. And oh, by the way, now you start Ryan Lindley Sunday against the Rams, and you probably cost the Cardinals a chance to win that game. And instead of maybe the Cardinals being 6-5 and five by sticking to John Skelton, being in the playoff front at least for now, you're probably going to force the Cardinals to start all over again. And you're wondering, I'm at least wondering, I don't know about you, but I'm at least wondering, are they going to decide to... Stick Lindley in there to lose games so they can go after Matt Barkley or Geno Smith or perhaps someone else. It's an interesting thing to ponder. And I think that's the only positive that can come from this because let's face it, Ken Wisenhunt cost his team a football game on Sunday. And to me, that's just unacceptable. Number five on my six-pack of headlines it involves, to me, what is unofficially a career-ending injury, but I think an injury that marked the last chance for Blaine Gabbert with the Jacksonville Jaguars. I hate to say it after just two seasons, but I think that's it for Blaine Gabbert. As a rookie, 210 completions and 413 pass attempts for 2,214 yards, 12 touchdowns, 11 interceptions. He took 40 sacks for a league-high 293 yards, only 98 rushing attempts, or 98 rushing yards on 48 attempts, 14 fumbles, five of which were lost. This year, 162 of 278 for 1662, nine touchdowns, six interceptions, sacked 22 times for 158 yards, 18 rushes for 56 yards, five fumbles, three of them lost. Now, those aren't good numbers, but if you put it in context, this is actually a historically bad start for Blaine Gabbert. He becomes only the fourth quarterback in NFL history in his first two seasons with at least 240 attempts, mind you, but in his first two seasons having a completion percentage below 60 and throwing for less than six yards per passing attempt. The other three quarterbacks... Rick Myrer, Ryan Leaf, and Joey Harrington. Those three all were first-round quarterback busts. So again, in his first two seasons, like Myrer, Leaf, and Harrington, all four of them had at least 240 passing attempts, which means they averaged at least 15 passing attempts per game, had a completion percentage under 60, and threw for less than 6 yards per passing attempt. Those are horrible numbers. And it shows here with his company. I think that's ultimately it for Blaine Gappert. 
He's on injured reserve. His season is over, and I think the Jacksonville Jaguars can move forward uh, and try and draft someone else because at least those three guys, it's not a huge sample size right now, but at least what history is suggesting from the previous three guys who achieved this quote-unquote feat, it doesn't look good for Blaine Gabbert, and I think the Jacksonville Jaguars should indeed move on. I think that was already kind of set in stone, but I think that statistical tidbit pretty much puts it to an end for Blaine Gabbert. And finally, the last one of our six-pack of headlines is a Thanksgiving Day bonus, and that's RJ3. That's right, Robert Griffin III having a Randy Moss-like breakout on Turkey Day. This reminded me a lot of the 1998 Minnesota Vikings defeating a high-powered Dallas Cowboys offense, at least for that day. In fact, Tony Romo, after his performance Thursday in the 38-31 loss to the Washington Redskins, finished with the second-most passing yards in a Thanksgiving Day game, and he only trailed Troy Aikman in 1998 when the Cowboys lost to the Vikings 49 at 39, I believe, was the final score. But this was a game that Randy Moss had a breakout game. He had a lot of highlight touchdowns for the Vikings, and that really kind of got his career off and going. RG3 has already been there in terms of his career going uh, sky high here. Um, but I think this is really the, the, the national showing that was needed. Now, I stand corrected. It was actually 46-36, Vikings defeating the Cowboys. But the Cowboys, they, they had a pretty good team. Troy Aikman had a pretty good game. Uh, overall, for Troy Aikman, uh, he was able to get the Cowboys pretty big performance. But on the other side, there was obviously Randy Moss who was getting the job done. Uh, but you look at the numbers for Moss. All three catches were for touchdowns, 163 yards, and really just uh, some some huge numbers and a big day for the Dallas Cowboys. This after, by the way, an overtime game, the previous game in Detroit. Seems a lot like this game here. Tony Romo having a big day in passing yards, but RG3 putting together a fantastic performance for the Washington Redskins. Another four touchdowns. One interception, but even that interception, you could see he was trying to give it a low percentage pass to be intercepted, but just kind of lofted in a nice diving interception by Charlie Pepra. Uh, but RG3, just a, a fantastic job that he's done. What is it now? 17 touchdowns, four interceptions. Uh, just a fantastic job by the third. And he's only a rookie. I, I'm just My mind is blown by what he's doing in his first season. But I think this is kind of what's going to encapsulate the rookie season from Robert Griffin III when you look back to his career. A lot like a lot of people did with Randy Moss in his rookie season with that Thanksgiving Day showing against the Dallas Cowboys. And oh, by the way, a few facts here. Not only is it the first time the Washington Redskins defeated the Dallas Cowboys on Thanksgiving, but it is the first time in Tony Romo's career that he lost a home game, a home start, in November. So uh, this was a pretty big win for the Washington Redskins, to say the least. Okay, let's move forward now. We're going to have a six-pack of statistical regression from Week 11, as well as a half of a uh, six-pack of statistical regression from the Texans' overtime victory over the Detroit Lions. Let's start things off with the Week 11 regression, and the first of the six-pack is Rob Gronkowski. Now, we already mentioned the New England Patriots getting greedy and Rob Gronkowski getting injured. Well, how about this? He had some regression to be had, and it comes in the worst possible way. Season-to-season regression, that is. Last year, he set tight end records with 1,327 yards and 17 touchdowns. Well, he already was due for some regression in terms of projection. He was projected this year to finish with 85 receptions below his 90 from last year for 
1,197 yards and 16 touchdowns. So he had regression going anyway. But now with his injury, he's stuck at 53, 748, and 10. Quite the amount of regression for Rob Gronkowski. Number two on the six-pack here is the Houston Texans defensive passer rating, which took even a bigger hit considering what happened Thursday against the Detroit Lions. But entering the game against Detroit after they won over the Jacksonville Jaguars 43-37, and Chad Henney had himself uh, quite a great game, especially first to third quarters when he completed 13 of 17 passes for 250 yards, three touchdowns for a 157 passer rating. Uh, he did slow down in fourth quarter in overtime play, completing only three of 16 passes, but did so for 104 yards and a touchdown. This game against the Jaguars moved the Texans defensive pass rating from 71-65 up to 77-22. Now remember the Texans, they had a huge jump in DPR from 2010 to 2011, 100.49 to 69.1. And that pretty much showed the Texans were due for some regression coming back down to the 70s or 80s. And I think that will be the case for the Houston Texans as they still had an NFL best 54.24 completion percentage entering Thursday, Thursday's game against the Lions. Uh, but nonetheless, you can see the defensive pass rating starting to regress for the Houston Texans. Number three on the six-pack of regression is the Chicago Bears and their takeaways. Monday night against the San Francisco 49ers, they lost 37-2, but it marked the first time they failed to get a turnover this season. In fact, the Bears having 30 in their first nine games, that was the most since the 1989 Philadelphia Eagles who had 35 in the first nine games. They actually finished with 21 in their final seven games. Uh, but the Bears had themselves at least two takeaways in each of the first nine games. That was the first team since the 2006 Chicago Bears, and only the 13th since 1978. And in fact, if you were to look at some of the other teams on this list, there were five teams that didn't make the playoffs. The 1999 Chiefs, 1987 Eagles, 1979 Giants, 1996 Bengals, 1985 Eagles. There was also four teams that didn't win a playoff game. 94 Patriots, 90 Chiefs, 84 Denver Broncos, and 1978 New England Patriots. There were two teams that made the conference championship game, the 84 Seahawks, the 79 Houston Texans, and then, of course, the 2006 Bears made the Super Bowl. So, obviously, uh, not really a strong trend in terms of playoff success for having to rely on so many turnovers in the first nine games of the season. But as you can kind of see... The regression is happening here for the Chicago Bears, and it's a big reason why they've lost their last two games. They're going to have to keep an eye on it. Their schedule will continue to get tougher, and if they can't get some big turnovers, they might be losing a few more games, and it might happen when the team least needs it into the postseason. Number four in our six-pack of regression from Week 11 the Atlanta Falcons in their offensive pass rating, as we mentioned, Matt Ryan, five interceptions in a 23-19 victory against the Arizona Cardinals. It dropped the Falcons' offensive pass rating from 102.64 to 94.78. And as we mentioned earlier in this podcast, only 28 teams since 1978 had an offensive pass rating of 100 or better. So this might be the game the Falcons look at when they don't reach that elite company. Number five on our six-pack of statistical regression from Week 11, the Jacksonville Jaguars in their scoring offense. The Jaguars had just 127 points in the first nine games. That's a 14.1 points per game average. How about this? The Jaguars putting up 37 points in Houston. It moved up the Jaguars' scoreability from 29th to 24th. And, well, I guess the Jags can thank Chad Henney, which I didn't think any team would really do. Finally, on our six-pack of Week 11 regression, it's the 80-1500-8 club. I'll explain it a little bit more here. Receivers who had 
80 receptions for 1,500 yards and eight touchdowns. That's an exclusive club for NFL wide receivers. Only 23 in that exclusive club, including Victor Cruz, Calvin Johnson, and Wes Welker from 2011. Now, of the first 20, no receivers the following year improved in all three categories. Only one receiver improved in receiving yardage, which was Marvin Harrison in 2002. Only three improved in total receptions, and only five improved in touchdowns. Well, let's look to projections here. Victor Cruz, after last year, having 82 receptions for 1,536 yards and nine touchdowns. This year, he is slated to have more receptions, 96, more touchdowns with 11, but fewer receiving yards, 1,189. As for Calvin Johnson, last year, 96 for 1,681 and 16 touchdowns. This year, he's actually slated entering the game against uh, the Houston Texans, which he probably still is on pace to uh, break the marks for receptions and yards, but only had three touchdowns through 10 games, got one more yesterday against the Houston Texans, 4-11, and but still well under the one touchdown per game average he had last year with 16. And finally, Wes Welker, 122 for 15-69-9 and last year. Entering the game against the Jets, he was on pace for 117, 14, 24, and 3, which is obviously lower in all three categories. So you're seeing this exclusive club. It's exclusive for a reason. All three of these guys are facing some serious regression. Moving forward here, we have a half of a six-pack of statistical regression from Week 12. And we'll start things off with Matt Stafford in his first half passing touchdowns. Matt Stafford, through 10 games, had only two touchdowns in the first half, and he's been very good in the second half, but not so much in the first half, completing 117 passes and 196 attempts for 1,203 yards. Two touchdowns, seven interceptions, though. Thursday, against the Texans in the first half, 14 of 26 for 246 yards and two touchdowns. Definitely uh, some regression there for Matt Stafford, who's in really what's been an imbalanced season so far, slow starts, strong finishes, for the first time this season having a real strong start. And that's something you expect to see as it gets closer to a full season, those halves really evening out. And that's good to see there, at least for Matt Stafford's sake. On the flip side, we look at the Houston Texans for the last two of this half six-pack, which is a three-pack. And first things first, the Houston Texans' third down defense. Through 10 games, the Texans allowed only 33 conversions and 129 tries, which was a league-best 25.6%. And in fact, at some point, CBS mentioned that it was actually the best mark on third down defense in about three decades. Well, the Detroit Lions on Thursday went 9 of 18 on third down, and even 50% which moves the Houston Texans to 42 of 147. And that would put their overall mark to 28.6, which is quite a considerable increase. If you think about that's more than a 10% increase in a third down defense for the Houston Texans. So that another big factor of regression. And finally, Well, this is obviously regression. The Houston Texans run defense, not allowing a single touchdown through 10 games, and in fact, was allowing a 3.9 yards per rush average. The Detroit Lions got a pair of rushing touchdowns, one from Michael LaShore, one from Joyke Bell, and overall, the Detroit Lions having an effective day on the ground. They were able to net 106 yards on 23 carries, which was a 4.6 yards per rush average. So the defensive hogs having some regression for the Houston Texans when you talk about third down defense and the run defense. And that is a 1.5 pack of statistical regression. Moving forward on the six pack here, moving on to a six pack of top teams. According to yours truly, through 11 weeks plus three games from Thanksgiving. Number one on my list, it's still the Houston Texans. Yes, I know they barely beat the Detroit Lions on Thanksgiving. 
But think about this. They played nearly 10 quarters of football in the span of uh, four days, more or less. He put together those 96 hours, nearly 10 quarters. They still got both victories. They're 10-1. and one. And entering this week, the Houston Texans were in the top five and seven of 13 categories in the quality stats. And in the top eight in 11 of 13 categories, the only two that they were in the top eight, the offensive hog index, which they were ninth, and the bendability index, which they were 11th. Now, it's quite possible when week 12 is all said and done that they won't be so high up in some of the defensive stats. But nonetheless, the Texans right now are still my number one team. Yes, back-to-back overtime wins against losing teams and now three one-possession victories against losing teams. But the Texans have one game left against a losing team. If they beat the Titans in considerable fashion next week, we won't have to worry about any precedent of weak victories over inferior teams. So the Houston Texans still number one on my list. Moving all the way up to number two on my six-pack of top teams, Are the New England Patriots, yes, I know, I'm saying they might be a little bit too greedy and karma might be headed their way, but sixth in the quality stats, power rankings, third in the relativity index, fourth in the offensive pass rating, and really what's impressing me most as of late is the way the defense is playing, and they're starting to become a turnover machine. There will be some regression to be had for the New England Patriots, and I'm pretty sure I'll break it down in next week's podcast. Uh, But nonetheless, the way that their defense is playing right now, making those big plays, I gave the Chicago Bears credit when they were doing it. They drop on my list. In fact, out of the top six, now that regression is starting to hit. So until that regression happens, I'll put the New England Patriots at number two. Number three on my six-pack is the San Francisco 49ers. They're third in the quality stats power rankings, first in the relativity index, and second in pass rating differential. Number four, the Denver Broncos. They're second in the quality stats power rankings, first in real quarterback rating, second in the relativity index. Number five on my list, the Green Bay Packers. They might be the most balanced team outside of the Houston Texans. The Packers are in the top 10 in nine of 13 categories in the quality stats. They're fourth overall in the rankings, but most importantly, though, first in passer rating differential. And finally, for our six-pack, it's the Baltimore Ravens. I know that's right. No Atlanta Falcons, despite being 9-1. and one. That's right. I move the Ravens ahead of them. They're seventh in the quality stats power rankings, fifth in defensive pass rating. They're now up to third in the scoreability and bendability indexes. So all of a sudden, this Ravens team that people were starting to malign their defense, saying it's not as good as pass teams, they're top five pass defense. They're doing a very efficient job not allowing teams to score while getting the job done on special teams to really boost that scoreability, especially as of late with Jacoby Jones. So I'm not really finding that criticism anymore. They had a rough patch where they needed back-to-back-to-back wins by, by one possession to beat the Browns, Chiefs, and Cowboys. But since that loss to the Houston Texans, they've done a good job. They've had... Really solid to comfortable victories uh, against teams like the Cleveland Browns, who are lowly, but getting a victory on the road Sunday night in Pittsburgh is also big as well. So Baltimore, ahead of Atlanta, who once again struggled against a losing team and only won at home by four points. I mean, it's, it's not a good sign for an Atlanta team that beats Arizona by four at home, Dallas by six at home, Oakland by three at home, and Carolina by two at home. Those four teams, which are all losing teams, and you beat them by a combined 15 points. That is disgusting and nauseating, to say the least. I, I just, I, I've had enough of the Atlanta Falcons, and they're out of my top six right now. And finally, we close out this edition of the Stat Pack with a six-pack of matchups to look forward to in Week 12. First things first... Andrew Luck going up against a rather weak Buffalo Bills defense. But a Buffalo Bills defense that did put together a pretty nice game at home on Thursday night football against the Miami Dolphins. Now, 
The Colts are 31st in passer rating differential. How they're 6-4, and four, it's still quite beyond me. How they have a victory against team number one in passer rating differential is also beyond me. But nonetheless, here's a chance for Andrew Luck to probably win a game that the Colts should win. It's at least a toss-up in terms of the quality stats. And with the Colts being at home, you would think they should win. And they go up against a Buffalo defense that's 24th in defensive pass rating, 92.61, 19 touchdowns allowed compared to 8 interceptions. Can Andrew Luck get the job done? He's not even close in my book near the offensive rookie of the year status. I'd put RG3 ahead of him, obviously. I'd put Russell Wilson ahead of him. I'd put Alfred Morris ahead of him. I'd put Doug Martin ahead of him. Andrew Luck might not even be, to be honest, in my top five. But regardless, he does have the team at six and four, and here's a chance for him to prove his worth going up against the Buffalo Bills. Speaking of rookie quarterbacks, how about Russell Wilson, which is next up on my six-pack of intriguing matchups, going up against the Miami Dolphins defense. And it's a defense that is starting to slow down. The defensive hog index is still in the top 10. So is the defensive pass rating, but it's starting to drop. Defensive pass rating now to 10th at 80.11, but only allowing under 57 completion percentage right now for those Miami Dolphins. And here's a chance for Russell Wilson on the road in Miami, an early game, the Seahawks have done a terrible job on the road, especially in early games. They're all the way across the country, but off a bye. Here's an interesting chance for Russell Wilson, not only to get the Seahawks a victory and keep them in a good position to get a wild card spot and maybe, just maybe even, get those Seahawks a divisional crown. Yes, it's still possible. Here's a chance for him to show that he's more than just a rookie if he can go on the road and do well against this Miami defense and get the Seahawks a tough road victory. For the final four of my six-pack, they're all just straight-up games, games I'm interested in. First things first, in the NFC North, the Minnesota Vikings going up against the Chicago Bears. The Bears having back-to-back losses against quality teams. Now, granted, the Houston Texans number one and the San Francisco 49ers number three in my rankings. The Minnesota Vikings aren't quite the same. They're 18th. But this is a team that can get the job done. And let's see what the Bears can do to bounce back after their embarrassing showing. Now, as of the time um, recording this podcast, it looks like Jay Cutler may start Sunday against the Vikings. Meanwhile, it looks like Percy Harbin likely to be out. This is going to help the Chicago Bears. Not going to help the Minnesota Vikings. But if the Vikings can find a way to go on the road and beat the Bears, they will have a 3-0 start in the division, and they'll move up to 7-4, move ahead of the Chicago Bears, and might be in position to make the playoffs with that improving defense and Christian Ponder, who's doing a so-so job as of late. Meanwhile, we move on to another divisional matchup that involves the Atlanta Falcons and the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Now, the Buccaneers, a tough spot for them, trying to beat the Falcons. But here's a chance. The Falcons 9-1, the Buccaneers 6-4. If the Buccaneers get a sweep against the Falcons, they'll only need to gain one more gain of ground in their final four games or their other four games, to steal the division against the Atlanta Falcons. But that's not really important right now. They need to get wins just to stay in the playoff front. And their offense is doing a very good job as of late. They're, they're right up there near the top in key statistics. They're ninth in real quarterback rating and offensive passer rating. They're ninth as well. You look at, though, on the other side to the Atlanta Falcons, Mike Nolan's defense is playing pretty good. 11th in defensive passer rating. I'm interested to see what the Falcons can do. Now that they have a big game on the road against a divisional opponent, remember, last time they went on the road, they lost to a divisional opponent in the New Orleans Saints. 
Here's a chance to see what both teams are made of. Here's a chance to see what Matt Ryan is made of after having a bad game against the Arizona Cardinals. And let's just face it, you have one of the hottest teams in the Tampa Bay Buccaneers going up against one of the luckiest teams, arguably, in the Atlanta Falcons. I'm really liking what can happen from this game. As for the final two of the six-pack, their rematches of last year's NFC Divisional Round, First things first, the San Francisco 49ers at the New Orleans Saints. If Alex Smith starts, it's a rematch of the catch three last year where Vernon Davis had a historical catch and the 49ers defeat the Saints at home in a crazy divisional game that had just the most awesome fourth quarter I've seen in a long while. Now, if Colin Kaepernick starts, well, how about this for his first road start in the Superdome against Drew Brees? Can these 49ers keep up against Drew Brees in a scoring machine for a second time? Or can San Francisco's defense, which is doing a fantastic job, even without the big plays, their top-tier defense, can they slow down Drew Brees? And can the 49ers get another win against a tough team and move up to 8-2-1? and one? I'm very interested to see how this game will pan out. It's, it's just one of those games that is very intriguing. And finally, it was a big upset from last season when the Giants went into Green Bay and defeated the Packers. Here's a rematch. Giants hosting the Packers. The Giants, 6-4. and four. If they lose, they'll be just a game ahead of the Washington Redskins and the Dallas Cowboys. But if they can beat Green Bay, all of a sudden now the Packers might be close to being in that wild card hunt and being surpassed by possibly the Buccaneers. And yes, that's right, the Seahawks. Keep a lookout for all of that. Aaron Rodgers, best offensive passer rating right now, under the radar as an MVP candidate, doing it against some tough defenses like the 49ers, the Seahawks, the Arizona Cardinals. Going up against Eli Manning, who in his last three games has not thrown a touchdown pass. He's having one of the worst stretches of his career. Probably his worst stretch since before he won Super Bowl 42. Here's a chance after a week off to have a big game and get the Giants back in winning form. I think this week has already been fantastic and it will continue to be fantastic. There's a lot of toss-up games as well. So for those of you who are trying to figure out in your pick'em and in your in your betting pools who to go for, make sure to check out coldheartfootballfacts.com. They'll have the skinny. All you need to know for these matchups, it's going to be a fantastic week. Pigskins fans, enjoy the rest of your week 12. <laughs>